Hey, good to see you fine folks. Uh, I was asked this morning, we had a fantastic, so we had some national staff meetings with links. Many of you know I'm still very involved in, in uh, national ministry, it's actually international, but mostly national ministry of links. At our staff meeting this last week and Zoomed in, we've hired four or five new people and a lot of things are happening. Many of you are here because of a Lynx Fellowship or something that started at your club, which was pretty much the genesis of this church. When we launched the day we opened church at the Red Door, I think we had about 300 people, and the lion's share of those were folks that had come in through through that ministry. So uh, as, your, as one of your pastors, it's uh, my privilege to be involved both on a national basis with ministry that's going out, but you need to know that you, in many ways, as we've talked about often, are a hub of that activity, and uh, I can envision national conferences and things on that property there at 49th and Jefferson used not only for this community church that's growing of Church at the Red Door, but also the Ministry of Links. So thanks for that privilege you've uh, extended me and uh, my other involvements outside of just Church at the Red Door. And we have a crack staff who gave their testimony a couple of weeks ago. I heard it was incredible. Dr. Mary and Paul uh, was fantastic. And last week I was able to watch, and and, uh, Paul always does such a great job. Let's give Paul a little bit of a... You know, Paul was a senior pastor for 15 years and comes here as a uh, as one of our uh, one of our on our pastoral staff. It's our privilege to have him, and uh, he takes care of a lot of the pastoral duties that are involved here at Church of the Red Door. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. When we talk about religion, you know, there's kind of a movement in my own life, and I see it in others too, to talk about, well, I'm really not religious, because a lot of people will associate you if you go to church and say, "Well, he's a very religious guy," or "She's so religious." And I try to kind of back away from that uh, because, and it's semantics, it's language. And if you were really to define religion, it would be a system of faith, a system of worship is essentially what religion is. And today there's probably over 10,000 very distinctive religions around the world. What is it in man that draws him or her to worship? to have a system of belief in some kind of power. Well, we've talked about it often. It's often creation. We look around, we can see something had to get this whole party started. And uh, that's where we see this. And so I want to uh, real quickly lead you to here to Psalm 139. Before we start, uh, we've already entered into worship. I love that opening song. I want looking for a revival in our nation. We really are. We, there is no other hope in my view than a revival of thought about God and, and correct thinking, proper theology in thinking about his plans for earth. And those thoughts are precious not only to me, but also to the psalmist. In verse 17 of Psalm 139, it says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. I want you to think about that for a minute. How precious are your thoughts I have been revived in my own life. I have been, as we're going to talk about this morning, redeemed and ransomed because of the words that I read from this book that came from other people's lips to me through this book. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, and they're precious, these thoughts of God. He goes on to say, how vast, how vast is the sum of them. We can't even begin to fathom all the thoughts that God has toward you. The fact that he knows you intimately and personally, knows the number, according to Jesus, the number of hairs on your head, the number of birds in the air. He sees when even a bird falls from the air. I mean, he, he, he has all the details, and the more we understand 
uh, about our world around us, all the way down to the atomic level and the cellular level, the molecular level, all these, we see incredible design. We see God's thoughts, but not just about creation, about recreation in you and about his church. And he goes on to say, when I awake, he says, excuse me, he says, if I should count them, they would but number the sand, but when I awake, I am still with you. Did you... Did you feel that you awoke with God this morning and the sum of his thoughts or were just a lot of, there's a cacophony of voices going on in your head, maybe some pain that you're enduring or a great trial or someone suffering near you? This is our moment to come and redirect and think about his thoughts and worship him. Uh, am I religious? Well, by definition, I have a system of faith and I have a system of worship, but it's not a system, it's a person. Right? I, I, I have faith in a person, and I have worship toward the Godhead, towards the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that allows me to be revived in my life. Are you ready to be revived? Here we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege, the privilege of being able to think your thoughts. Lord, the, the, this is the mere idea that we, we can't fathom your power but that we can think your thoughts after your thinking. That's what it is to come into the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Coming into the kingdom is beginning to think your thoughts about all of reality and all of the created order. To think not wicked, which means crooked, but to think straight, to think properly about why you created us? What's the purpose of the seen realm of our cosmos that we live in? Lord, what is the purpose? Why are we here? Help us understand. Help us glean something from your word this morning that will powerfully refute the little voices that run around in our head that, well, Lord, that lead us away from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 13 this morning, and uh, I am excited about this. We started a number of weeks back, and I told you that this, la- this chapter of 13 really introduces us to six different characteristics of Jesus and his ministry on earth. It really does, and, and when I was here with you last, a couple, several weeks ago, what we looked at was the, the compassion that Jesus has. We, we, could not, we cannot get over the fact that Jesus immersed himself in fallen humanity, which was the ultimate act of compassion. He healed people. He was concerned about people. He wept over death. He was, he was involved in people's lives. Compassion is certainly one of the characteristics we learn about our unseen Father in heaven who is spirit, through the incarnation of Jesus as the God-man. We learn about the Father. We learn about the Godhead. The Godhead is full of compassion. And then we're also going to look at the second portion this morning of the six characteristics and that Jesus was not afraid to confront bad religion when he saw it. Why? Because it leads people to death. Bad religion again, is the greatest hiding place for Satan in all the world because it has the, all the external appearances of righteousness but denies one central key point, and that is the transformation of the human heart. You cannot transform the human heart without the power of ransom and redemption through the Holy Spirit. Bad religion cleans the outside and leads to death. 
always, it never confronts the heart of man. So Luke chapter 13, and we're going to start again in verse 10, and we're going to read down through 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. Now, I know that sounds odd. Again, let me repeat, it sounds odd in our day and time because we can't imagine that, well, there's always a physical cause of problems that are, well, if they have a physical problem, you have a physical cause. That may be uh, true in many respects, but it's also, it's also the spirit realm the attitude, the atmosphere in a person's life around them that lead, lead to physiological problems too. I won't get into this, was this woman demon-possessed and all that. I'm not going to talk about that. There was a spiritual problem at the core of her problem. And she was bent over double. Remember, we spoke about this, and she could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. Now, who wouldn't applaud that? Who wouldn't say, well done, Jesus. That is incredible. This woman, we knew her. As I spoke to you a few weeks ago, she was bent over double. Can you imagine the kind of pain and the kind of humiliation that she had to go through? Probably very rarely left her house if she was bent over double. Can you not imagine the the parade that should be thrown given the fact that this woman was now released from this awful condition? Again, we see Jesus and his compassion. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect and began glorifying God. Jesus' engagement always with me and you always leads to our glorifying of him. It always does. True engagement with with Jesus leads to a glorifying of the king, making him famous. If Jesus, if you've engaged Jesus, you will be engaged with glorifying him for the rest of your life. It's as simple as that. You cannot quit telling the story. But the synagogue official, but the synagogue official, but the synagogue official. What? What do you mean but? There is no but here. It's a parade. It's party time. This woman has been set free from an incomprehensible physical ailment, but the synagogue official indignant. Indignant about what? What possible thing could lead to him being indignant about this? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd, to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Jesus was never afraid to confront hypocrisy when he saw it. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? Should, uh, if your animals should be watered on the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for man. This is part of our rest but it had been legalized in a tenant where even water, well, of course you water your animals. Should this woman not have been, in a figurative sense, watered today? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan had bound for 18 long years, should, well, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day and 
he said this, and all of his opponents were being humiliated, as they should have been, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by Jesus. So here's my question. How, how, possib- how is it possible that religion, a system of faith and worship, can lead to this kind of indignant response towards a woman being, again, we'll use this idea of watered, on the Sabbath, being released from this incredible oppression that she had endured for 18 years. How can religion lead to that? You know, it's one of the biggest points I get when I am out on the streets and out in the lanes, so to speak, of Luke 14, 23, go out into the streets and the lanes and compel them to come out and the highways and the hedges, go wherever you need to go, but compel them to come in. And when I'm compelling people about Jesus It's always the same. Religion is a bad thing. Look, and they point back towards all kinds of historical atrocities or cults or Jim Jones or David Koresh or whoever, or even within the guise of Christianity, the the historical absurdities in the name of Jesus over countless centuries, and they point to that as being a disqualifier for religion to have anything or any pertinence to my life. It has to be fake. It has to be wrong functionally and fundamentally because what it's led to, it's led to death. And I will say with them, yes, Christopher Hitchens, uh, atheist, religion, bad religion. I'll just add one word. Bad religion poisons everything. And again, let me say, it's, a, it's an amazing hiding place for Satan's activities in the world. There's something in us, the, uh, Solomon said it in, his, in Ecclesiastes, some of the wisdom literature, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, we know that there is something beyond this experience that I'm having in a physical body made of trillions of atoms I, I, there, I'm, I'm having some kind of an experience, and I think it's transcendent. I have moments where it becomes very clear to me that there is a transcendent element to my, the nature of my thinking, my consciousness and everything. I can argue it away. I can use science to try to argue it away. But just deep down, I know that there is something about me that will go on beyond my last breath. And it's not just you. It's pretty much every culture that's ever existed. If you have your Bibles, please go to Isaiah 35. I want to talk about this watering and why. And and I'm going to begin to try to give you two primary constructs in which to think about bad religion. The first one is I'm going to call bad religion an attempt to self-water. You ever had those little sprinkler systems out, you know, when, when you're, you know, you don't, I guess this was back in the day. You had to kind of go out and run the hose out there, and you had those little systems, the little sprinklers. My kids don't know anything about this. The sprinklers come on in the middle of the night, and they kind of hear this little in the middle of the night, and they don't know what that is. You had a sprinkler system. We run all. But back in the day, you ran the hose out, and Self-watering, it was nice. The kids get to play in it. It looks good. But in the end, you got all kinds of dead spots and dirt spots and everything because you just can't get per- very good coverage when you got to run the hole. You overwater here, and it's all muddy, and you underwater over here, and it's all dry, and it's just self-watering is really difficult. And Isaiah had seen a picture coming in the future when there was going to, well, it wasn't going to be self-watering. It's going to be something else. It's going to be, if you will, uh, water 
a water from heaven. And listen to what he says, because Jesus quotes this about his own ministry in Matthew chapter 11 with John the Baptist when he's having this midlife crisis, and he quotes Isaiah 35 as being fulfilled in the time of Jesus' own ministry on earth. Isaiah had seen this 700 years or so before. Verse 1 of Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. How's that going to happen? Something's going to be watering these things. It's going to blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing. The shout of joy, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Water from heaven is on its way. This is what Isaiah is seeing. Now, he uses it as a metaphor as it evolves into something more than literal rain during a drought. Boy, does California need a little water. The Colorado could use some headwater. Lake Mead and Powell are going down. You see the reports every day. We're in the midst of an unbelievable, really unprecedented kind of a drought. 150 feet or so at various points, the water levels are down. They're finding all kinds of bodies and things and boats turned upside down. It's amazing what gets buried in a big, deep lake. But strengthen the feeble. Say to those who are anxious of heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. And then verse 5, Jesus, Jesus quotes this in response to John the Baptist's midlife crisis. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and those women bent over double for 18 years are going to stand up straight and begin to glorify God. This is exactly the ministry of Jesus. It is water from heaven. And the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy and waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And then verse, catch this, verse 8, and a highway will be there, a roadway, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. And the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools won't wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast will go up on it. No, these will not be found there, but the, now what? The redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads, and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is a picture of the ultimate transformation of the entire globe and earth under Jesus' second coming, but it's also a picture of the foretaste we got in Jesus' first coming. The lame began to leap. Those women who were bent over double began to straighten up and glorify God. And the blind received their sight. And, and well, people like Jeff Cranford, nasty old pathetic life, hell-bent to have his own way and all the disgusting sin that he lived in, it's going to be transformed into something better. He's not going to be perfect. It's just a foretaste. But you'll be able to smell a scent of water, as Job had seen. Just at the scent of water, things began to grow. Things began to grow. That is water from heaven. Bad religion is an attempt to self-water. 
to clean the outside of the cup and not have the inside of the cup cleaned. When the inside of the cup is cleaned, it always, and Jesus said would be the case, it always begins to bear fruit. You put a seed, the born-again seed, on the inside of someone, and then water begins to, it says God does the, he waters, he causes the growth and all this, the sunshine and everything, things begin to grow. You begin to change. That's true religion in the sight of God. It's the born-again experience. But every other religion is an attempt for man to water himself and clean the outside. And it revolves around two very distinct terms here, redemption and ransom, redemption and ransom. I call it R&R. You want a little rest and relaxation? You want a little R&R? You need a little R&R. Redemption is a term that's used that helps us understand that God is reclaiming us. He is liberating us. Redemption is beautiful. It's salvation. It's redemption. It's, it's, it's incredible, the picture that we get, but it requires, and sometimes these are used interchangeably, and I understand in terms of the Greek and where we get this and even back in the Hebrew, but they're distinctively different words, and ransom is the payment of a price, and that price that was paid could only be the God-man because he was the only spotless lamb without blemish, no blemish. The price was high. The ransom paid. The price paid for the redemption was incredibly high, and the prophet was seeing that 700 years before. You want to get on this highway? It's going to require ransom and redemption. But Isaiah had already seen as well the problem and the stagnant nature of the nation of Israel who was practicing the outside, and they were really concerned about Sabbath, even during the time of Isaiah, again, over 700 years before the time of Jesus, and the same cycle exists today. People want to get a simple system. They want to create a God of their own, and when it doesn't lead to fruitfulness, they are self-waterers. The foundation of it is ransom and redemption. Although you can parade around as religiously as you would like. Why? Because it's such a great hiding place. You can serve on a board. You can, you can do all kinds of things. You can give all your money away. You can do all these things. Uh, and, and religious nature, even, even if it's Christianity at the core of it, in terms of what we would call it. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says here in Isaiah 1. He, God was incredibly concerned Again, well before the time of Jesus and his encounter with the synagogue official. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What, is that in, what does that even mean? You're so religious. In fact, you multiply your sacrifices. You're very engaged in religious activity. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed cattle. Those were the Lord's instruction in the first place. But it was pointing to a person. The the system of activity and faith here was pointing to a system. It wasn't fulfilled in the system itself, and they couldn't get that. It had led this synagogue official to be indignant at the healing of a woman. He was a self-watered man, although he was incredibly religious. His whole life was built around the synagogue. 
I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? And I can see what they're saying. You told us to do this. You're the one who took Moses up on the mountain and said, do it exactly according to the pattern. We're doing everything you tell us to do. And now you're telling us you're exhausted from this? What's the deal? I can imagine the, the reaction to God's, well, to God's scathing rebuke through Isaiah. Verse 13 says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense, well, it's an abomination to me. New moon and what? Sabbath. I'm not into it. The calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. In other words, they're gathering places that God had prescribed, like the New Testament church. I, can't, I cannot bear you just coming to church. If Jesus was here with us today, I cannot bear you just coming to church, and yet you're still a self-waterer. I hate your moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They've become a burden. I'm growing weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, these are people who pray. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, multiply prayers, I will not listen. Here's the problem. Here's the bottom. Your, your hands are covered. Your hands are covered in blood. Now, is that the blood of these sacrifices? I think it more denotes than internal murderous heart that still existed. We see that in the synagogue official. He was rebuking because this woman got healed. There was something so functionally wrong on the inside of this synagogue official that it led to the horrors of him not even being able to celebrate this woman and her reconnection with God by reconnecting, glorifying God through having reconnected with her body and being able to have control over her body again. I mean, can you imagine what a disaster? You know, this doesn't just happen in the context of religion like you would think of, like a system of faith. There are all kinds of systems of faith. In fact, everybody, everybody who's maybe even listening on television or otherwise or on Internet or whatever, let me just be very clear, everyone has a system of faith. Everyone has a system of worship. All of us, in that sense, are religious, even though I'm not very religious. Oh, let me be clear, and, use, and I'm going to use the language, I, I, this article written by, uh, by James Bavard in the USA Today. Listen to what he says just about the religion of communism and the language that he uses that sound very, well, churchy to me. Mark's salvation scheme was built Notice his salvation scheme. Karl Marx came out. This is, I will buy, my system of understanding, my worldview is the salvation of the world. So it has a salvation message. Was built on a mystical foundation supplied by the German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel. Though the New York Times eulogy for Marx touted Hegel as, a, as an advocate for a rational liberal state. Hegel was derided in his lifetime as the royal Prussian court philosopher and for promoting the notion that the state is inherently rational. Hegel de deified, gover deified government, asserting that the state is the divine idea. L listen to all the religious language about statecraft, about politics, about a worldview, about about an ideology as it exists on earth. Marx, perhaps blinded by Hegel, never recognized the inherent danger of Leviathan. Well, that sounds interesting. 
biblical language, Leviathan, nor did Marx explain how communism would actually arise after the demolition of capitalism. Equally important, he never attempted to reveal how the state would wither away after the dictatorship of the proletariat commenced. Marx's humanitarian piffle did nothing to deter Lenin from decreeing that liberty is so precious that it must be rationed. In other words, we need control. The state needs control. Marxists assumed that vastly increasing government power was the key to, now listen to this churchy, spiritual, religious kind of language, to liberating humanity. Remember, redemption is essentially the liberation of someone, the reclaiming of someone's life. Glorifying command and control was the flip side of demonizing prices and profits. But all powerful regimes, all powerful, sounds like God language, doesn't it? All powerful regimes quickly became ends in themselves. In 1932, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin decreed the death penalty for any theft of state property. As millions of Ukrainians were starving due to the brutal collectivization of farms, sound familiar? It's happening right under our noses. Even children poaching a few ears of corn could be shot. A worldview, self-watering. Oh, yeah, we want salvation, Marx's salvation. We want a deified government. We want the state to be the divine idea. We want to liberate all of humanity. This is a religion. This is a religion. This is a way of viewing life. And then I wrote, ideas and philosophies have consequences. If you imagine that having the right system of belief and worship outside of knowing the one who ransoms and redeems, then it can and most certainly will lead to tyranny. No question about it. Anger at people being healed on the Sabbath or even shooting starving children for poaching a few ears of corn it always ends in death and blood on the hands. When you try to self-water, it will end in death. Now, that doesn't mean someone may be shot, or it just may be an attitude. It may be a fruitless life. It doesn't look anything like water from heaven that ends up with blind people seeing both literally and spiritually, deaf people, ears being opened, the lame leaping. It never ends in that. Religion doesn't end in that kind of thing. It requires exactly what Isaiah had seen, exactly what Hosea had seen in Hosea 13. Two words, a little R&R. To get R&R, you need R&R. To get rest and relaxation, you need redemption and ransom. That's why we are church at the red door. The price was high. It was the blood of an unblemished lamb. His name was Jesus. Jesus hated, hated religiosity. John the Baptist hated religiosity as defined by what? Self-watering. In Luke chapter 3, 
As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 4, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. Now, this is a preparation for Jesus' ministry. This was John the Baptist. How did he do it? There was, this, there was a word that was very important, and it was the ministry of repentance. He came harsh. He came under the law that required repentance. He goes, goes on and says, John the Baptist in verse 7, he began saying to the crowds who were going to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You think John the Baptist was afraid to confront bad religion? We live in a time where people are just afraid to say anything about anything. If anybody else has a belief, all beliefs, well, there's a meritocracy here. All beliefs are equally valid. Allow me to say, all beliefs are not equally valid. And if you think that or you hold to that, a lot of people say, well, I don't hold to that in reality. But as it relates to religion and all that stuff, all equally valid, or in my view, maybe all equally invalid. It cannot be the case. We know it's just intuitive. It's logical. All ideas are not equally valid. It's a law of non-contradiction. You can't have, well, all green people are wonderful and all green people are horrible. Those two cannot coexist. We, we can use that logical reasoning deduction. We can use our brains just as God had told Israel, come, let us reason together. We can reason and say, no, all ideas do not carry equal weight. And you cannot be afraid to confront when you see bad religion that is leading to death, either spiritually or otherwise. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with, well, in keeping with repentance. You need to acknowledge, all repentance is you're acknowledging your need for R&R, ransom and redemption. What he's saying is, and he goes on to say, do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, and I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children from Abraham. Don't use your religious pedigree. Well, I grew up this, or I, I grew up in the XYZ church, or I'm part of this, or I serve on the... Don't use whatever it is. Well, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Charismatic, I'm a church at the red door right. I'm a whatever. I mean, I'm a Catholic. I'm a, I'm a more, you know, whatever. Don't use your pedigree. That's not, it, it demands repentance, which is the foundation for an understanding that I need redemption. Somebody needs to reclaim me, and there's got to be a price, and I can't pay it. It's a price that's too high. But the Bible had been talking about that price for all of eternity. Jesus hated false religion. He confronts it here in Luke 13, but watch in Mark 3. Similar, almost exactly the same thing. It's the religious spirit. It stinks. It's poisonous. It's self-watering at its core. Mark 3, verse 1, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand had been withered, and they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Again, the Sabbath issue. We're just protecting the system of faith that God has given us through our precious father, forefather, Moses. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill it? But they kept silent. And after looking at them with anger, 
You notice Jesus was not only afraid to confront, this is anger, and it's righteously in, it's righteous indignation is what this is. I get angry when I see systems of belief and ideologies that will lead that person down a road, not only of eternal separation from God, but localized pain, not only in their lives, but people around them. I cannot, I will not say that all ideas, all beliefs are equally valid. It's just not true. He, he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And we're right back to Isaiah 1. You have all your solemn assemblies. You have your Sabbaths. You have your new moons. You have your festivals. You have your prayers. You, you multiplied sacrifices. Here, here, here's all my religious activity. Da-da, God, you got to be happy with me now. I'm now back to my life, and let's go kill that guy. You want to know what good religion is and bad religion? Good religion leads to incredible humility, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It leads to a life devoted to worship. It leads to a consecrated life. It leads to a life, like Paul said, to consider, like Jesus first, to consider others more important than yourselves. Paul, uh, I give my life for the well-being of somebody else. I, I deny my own rights. It's a denial of rights. It's not a, it's not a political, like, superpower, uh, a block of voters. That is not what Jesus' followership is. It always leads, well... God, heaven watering, that seed of being born again will lead to fruit. The other, the self-watering, no matter how religious it looks, doesn't matter. It always leads to something else. It leads to death. This book, and I've told, I've told you this before, I don't know what, if it's just the time that I read it or it's my own spiritual development. I've tried to order a bunch of these. They're hard to find. Uh, by a guy from Seattle, actually, Jan, Jan David Hedinga. I don't even know if he's still living. But this impacted me so profoundly. I remember reading this decades ago, and I've never forgotten it. And I, if you'll please bear with me, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here. But it's had such a profound, uh, un, it helped me understand. First of all, it pulled me away from what might be called uh, universalism or Unitarianism or something that says, look, again, all faith, all gods, all things are equally valid. Uh, now, I, I, I'm in one camp. It's either there's one that's true because they're all in conflict with one another or they're all wrong. But logically, it can't be that they're all equally valid because they're in complete con conflict with one another. And it was always a difficult uh, place for me to understand. And then I read this from Hedinga. Please, please listen. We know we have a problem. We sense it when we're separated from God. So what do we do about it? And maybe you're listening here and you're going, you know, I sense that I'm transcendent. I sense that there is a problem going on in my soul. We all have it. We have, from time immemorial, gotten religious. Religion is our way of trying to bridge the gap back to God's kingdom. And we've built some pretty incredible bridges. The problem is they never connect to the far shore where the ruler reigns. On our own, we can only create gods after our own liking, and we do it all the time. I'm drawn to that even as a pastor, creating a god that fits my, well, the way I want him to be. 
what kind of a God do we prefer? Do we want the top God, the Lord God Almighty, the King of Kings, the Creator, the Owner, the Operator of the universe? Do we want the God who commands all of our allegiance? If there are less demanding options, well, maybe not. Religion in our own image. For most of us, our God is one with whom we are comfortable, a God who lets us do whatever we want and gives us what we want. That's what the world of religion is tragically all about, counterfeiting divinity. That's what we see with communism. It's a counterfeit of divinity. It's the deification of the state, statecraft, if you will. Even Christianity can quickly become, well, be emasculated into mere religion. When ego-driven theologians get through with their scholarly knives of preference and pride, the corpses of God's Word bears little resemblance to the original. That's why we go line by line by line. You know, I like, you know, some people, this is, they're not, they're not, they're not built for church at the Red Door. They just want a pithy little thing. We, we, man, we dive deep here, and sometimes it feels like a scalpel, and it's hard, and it's hard for me. I've got I've to think about this all week. You only have to think about it for an hour. For 45 minutes, or some of you go, yeah, right, in, my, in your dreams, Jeff. He says even Christianity, again, can become emasculated. On a personal level, isn't our ability to limit God to one hour, one morning per week remarkable? It's so easy to go through the motions. Church ends, we close the door in religion, the religion category and go home and work in the yard or watch football or maybe even play a nine. Then we close the door on the recreation category and go to work or school. All the while, we insist that Christianity is important and all that, but we don't want to get carried away with all this stuff. Spirituality has its place, but you can't let it take over your life. Substitute religion has successfully helped millions avoid seriously dealing with the real creator God and his legitimate leadership, ownership, and authority. Something in us pulls us towards the perfunctory. Paying your dues, checking in once in a while, going through the motions. As a result, religion is a terrific hiding place for rebels. Some of the worst of which are in the pulpits. I pray all the time, Lord, I don't want to be a counterfeit. Lord, I, he asked me to say some things I don't want to say. I tell you things at times that I don't want to tell you. I'd much rather tell you how much I love you and how beautiful you are and how wonderful you're doing all the time. And then I read the Bible and I go, I don't know that that's my task. It's part of my task to be a pastoral figure in your life and to encourage you and equip you to go into the world and tell you how much God loves you. Of course, that's part of it. But it is, again, part of it. Sometimes surgery and radical surgery needs to be done. We must never forget that Satan loves religion, even Christian religion. He encourages it. He promotes it. He adds his brand of spiritual flavor and fizz to it. If you doubt this, remember the horrible deeds that have been done and are still being perpetrated in the name of various gods, including Jehovah and Jesus. This is unmistakable evidence of spiritual impersonation. Crusaders and inquisitors alike have been led astray in demonic fanaticism and then into crimes of self-righteous pride and even violent coercion. And in closing... No self-made religion can bridge the gap from humanity to God. Besides a God you can manipulate and control may be attractive, like having your own genie in a magic lamp, but he isn't real. The bridges back to God manufactured by people may have some fine ideas and principles built in, but they don't get the job done. They distract us and sidetrack us from the only bridge that can get us back to our 
creator. And lastly, as is in the case in Jesus' day, religion can be the perfect dodge, the ideal setup for a personal power trip. That's what was happening here in Luke 13 and Mark 3. Clever, dominant personalities have always found organized religion to be, a, well, a terrific base for self-aggrandizement. We can use religion for all kinds of things, self-perpetuation, monetary gain, power over people. You think that's going to change before Jesus comes back? It will not. But there is the true church, and the true church is not a self-watered church. The true church knows, knows the Lord. As we close, I just want to read a few things. A true church knows the Lord. I want you to, if you will, go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9 as we close here. Jeremiah chapter 9. I'm just going to read three quick verses. Verse 23, Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord. Again, this is being written about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might. Don't let the rich man boast about his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. You want to boast? You can do it. You want to brag in the kingdom? You can brag. Here it is. He boasts that he understands and knows me, knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There's this sense in which uh, it's kind of called the cosmic Christ. Some people are moving off into heresy, uh, uh, and there's kind of some popular people in our culture that under the guise of Christianity, kind of the cosmic Christ, as long as you love and care about justice and things like that, and they, but they... Here's the part they miss. The bridge that gets you all the way to the other side of the shore is always the same. Ransom and redemption. Ransom and redemption. Ransom and redemption. If righteousness could be achieved through just your good acts, Paul says to Timothy, then Christ died needlessly. To the Galatian church as well, excuse me. John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you. You want to get all the way to the other side of the shore? To know God, it's going to require redemption and your belief in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate ransom. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, 2 Peter 1, His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence. How do you get to the other side? Through the knowledge of Jesus. How do you understand Jesus and not understand Him as the Lamb of God that had to die on the cross and be resurrected on your behalf? How do you understand Jesus? How do you understand a cosmic Christ that's just moral or wonderful or has some good pithy statements that we don't even know what they are as a culture, but we say, as a moral teacher, how do you understand Jesus at all? I tell you what, you don't read this. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, and Jesus didn't back away from it. He knew why he came. He knew exactly why he'd come. So, here's my question to you. <clears throat> Not only are you a self-waterer, if you're religious, but it's bad religion, you're a self-waterer. But then, here's the second point, and in, in, in as we finish here, and I'm going to call it the dirt diet. You're also, not only are you a self-waterer, things get dry and then you eat the dirt. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 what the curse on the snake in the garden, Satan, the picture of Satan was? You know what the curse was? On your belly you shall crawl and you shall eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. Now, what did that mean? Why was that significant? You might be Jewish watching 
uh, this morning or something, and you say, well, that's right there in our Tanakh, our Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why was Satan relegated to eating the dust of the earth and crawling on his belly? Because he was, he had a, the rest of his life, he was relegated to being, well, restricted to a dirt diet. Self-waterers are eating a dirt diet. That's why they respond like this. If all you ate was dirt, you'd feel the same. You'd be indignant. You'd be upset. You wouldn't have any joy. Religion would squeeze the very life out of you. Maybe that's you today. Well, religion just squeezes the life out of me. Well, you ate the dirt diet. You, you, I don't care what it would call itself. I don't care if you've had, you may have had, been oppressed or been abused under the guise of Christianity. I'm telling you, it wasn't connected to, well, to the rain, to the water above. Then Jesus comes along and says, if you will eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll be one of my disciples, you'll be part of me. And they didn't understand that. But see, you have to partake of the king not only his flesh, but also his blood, his what? His ransomed price that he paid for you. And when you do, you get to avoid, well, the dirt diet. You don't have to be a self-waterer. Boy, that's hard too anyway. Jesus said you'll have, well, you'll have rivers of living water that will come somewhere from the inside of you, and not only will it fill you, but rivers of living water will begin to flow out, and you'll begin to have an impact on other people as well. Jesus was never afraid to confront bad religion, ever. Are you? Maybe you've been a part of bad religion. Maybe bad religion has defined your life. Well, you can change that right now. Say, Lord, I've tried to self-water my whole life, even under the guise of Christianity. Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I, Lord, it's all about me. And, I, and I'm asking you right now, just pray this, Lord. I ask you to forgive me for being a self-waterer. I've had a dirt diet, and it's dry and it's meaningless. In fact, I've got a horrible attitude towards organized religion or anything else that masquerades out there. Lord, I just, well, maybe that was oppressive. Maybe it was bad religion. Lord, I want to I want to do as you told us to do, to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And you can drink that blood right now by saying, Lord, I, I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. I repent. I know I need ransomed. I know I need to be ransomed. I know I need to be redeemed from my feudal ways inherited from my forefathers. Change me. Change me today. Lord, I'm here. I want to be part of, well, I want to be part of, I want to be part of you. I want to be part of you, and I want you to be part of me. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name.